The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, August 14th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. When a story begins with a pastor, an armed robbery in the pulpit, and a million dollars worth of ice, the story is headed to bad places. That was the opening sentence of an article that I read this week. So, new news this week, opening sentence. The article headline was this, pastor robbed of one million in jewelry, also sued for allegedly robbing congregate. I mean... The writer had all kinds of red flags for the million dollars in diamonds on Sunday morning. The church has never been larger than 75 people. But this particular pastor also convinced a 60-year-old member of his church to pull $100,000 out of her IRA and put it in her personal savings account, where he then convinced her to transfer 90000 of it to his business in return for a house that he would buy her and renovate so that she could move into it. And if there was any money left, he would let her have it. And after six months of no house, he accidentally sent an email to a relative of hers talking about his contract for his $4.5 million palatial estate, including theater, gym, however many bedrooms and bathrooms. And can you guess the down payment with the builder? $90,000 crazy thing is, I just scrolled down. I don't get the newspaper, but it was like a news aggregate. I just scrolled down, and there's another headline. Department of Justice is investigating the largest Protestant denomination and its handling of widespread sexual abuse scandals. How bad does it have to get for the Department of Justice to start subpoenaing people? Read the story, it gets pretty bad. So hopefully I've got your attention, right? You've got your Bibles, open them up to the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. We are strolling our way through this often overlooked letter of Paul. A letter most scholars agree is the earliest of all of our New Testament manuscripts. The earliest thing written that we have in the New Testament, but very often overlooked. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, or or when I've been around for the last several weeks, uh, we've just kind of savored chapter one so far. It's just an overflow from Paul's heart of gratitude to God for his grace and mercy and his power at work in the lives of this church. Just phrase after phrase of thankfulness to God for his calling of this church, for his work and the evidences of his grace in their lives, how their lives have become a witness not only in their city, adorning the beauty of the gospel, their lives matching the message that they're sharing, but it's so powerful that it's paved the way for Paul and his his friends as they've traveled on. Paul said, I get to other places and I hear about you. And so it's just been an overflow out of Paul's heart of gratitude to God for all the ways that God has continued to work in the lives of this church. And the last time that I was here with you and we were going through chapter one, we had a chance to just slow down, in some sense, reflect and consider what keeps us, 
what keeps you and I from living in the full conviction, from living in the vitality that we see Paul speaking about and on display in chapter one? What gets in our way? And then at the same time, how do we get in on it? And so we spend some time talking about the reality of idolatry and the things that take over in our hearts and the steady rhythm of turning from those idols into the real Jesus. Repentance and faith for our joy and the gospel's traction in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so this morning, as we just kind of keep strolling through the letter, we're not going to rush, strolling through the letter, we pick up chapter 2 and God is going to give us again another chance to consider and another chance to reflect. But this time, it's not so much going to be considering what gets in the way of the gospel, taking traction in our hearts and us living in this vitality and full conviction. It's going to be stopping and considering what gets in the way of the gospel being attractive to our city, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our roommates, to our kids. What gets in the way of the gospel being seen in all of its beauty? Spoiler alert, if you're ready, if you have a short time this morning, spoiler, it's usually us. It's usually us. I mean, again, let's just take a moment to be honest with ourselves this morning. One of the biggest hindrances to not only the spread of the gospel, but the beauty of the gospel and the traction of the gospel in a city like ours is very often the church. Not the structure, per se, or the organization, per se, but us. And here's the thing. We, we gain nothing by being dishonest about that. We just need to be honest about it. You know, Richmond needs to see a vibrant, steadfast church that's totally bought in, not just in word or, or not just in confession, but with their lives, totally bought in to the fact that Jesus is better. What they need to experience, what they need to not just see, but what they need to experience is a church whose lives reflect the reality of the message that we proclaim and it reflects that reality through the priorities that guide us, through the words that we speak. Lives that we would say increasingly reflect the character, the compassion, and the priorities of our Savior. Right? But just pick up the paper or scroll through your newsfeed. I just did it this week. That's not old. I just read you this week. Pick up the paper and pastors are robbing and abusing church members. Whatever it may be. But here's the thing, it's not just pastors. It's not just about church leaders. I mean, the most conservative research studies, and when I say conservative, I don't mean politically or theologically. I mean conservative in the sense of the manner and the measure they use to conduct their studies. They're not generally overinflated one way or the other. The most conservative studies will tell us that still today, in 2022, just over 50% of the American population will still self-identify as Christian. Still over, over half. But again, even at the beginning of our time now this morning together, if we just give ourselves a, a moment of honesty, we would have to admit that there is, more often than we want to at least admit, very little differentiation between the way many self-identified Christians 
and their non-Christian neighbors actually live. Again, the most conservative of studies, not politically, not theologically, just in methodology, the most conservative of studies will say that even within the church, the, 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 the rates and the numbers of, of addiction issues closely mirror those who don't self-identify with Jesus. Divorce rates are very close. Spending and consumption rates are very close. Debt rates are very close. In fact, the one I meant to check between services, but I'll tell you what I told the first service, I will go recheck it before next week, and if I'm wrong, I'll tell you. But the most recent 10-year study that came out indicates that self-identified Christians, let's just say the church, actually now give and giving is to anything philanthropic or even their church, give less than non-self-identified Christians. Consider the way we take care of ourselves, even physically. Bodies being the temples of the Holy Spirit. We can go on and on and on and look through the most conservative studies that are out there. But given those realities, again, we're just being honest, right? Given those realities, what do we think would actually attract people to the gospel, make the gospel attractive, adorn the message that we speak the way the Bible will talk about it. I mean, for the large percentage of time in the last probably 40, 50 years, the church has bought the lie that bigger buildings, better programs, tighter run things. We've swallowed a lie, let's just say, under the larger banner of relevance and It's really just been our best effort to be liked by people. And the problem is the the lives that the church, again, I'm just speaking broadly, based on self-identified patterns, the lives that the church has lived have tended to influence our neighbors to not be attracted to the gospel. To not adorn the message that we speak. One part of the good news this morning is there's nothing new under the sun. It's not a new problem, right? And so while chapter one gave us a moment to reflect and consider what gets in the way when it comes to us individually, you living with the full conviction we see on display in chapter one, that kind of vitality, chapter two gives a chance to reflect on how our lives either adorn the gospel or make it increasingly unattractive. And we get that opportunity to reflect through a unique doorway in chapter 2. It's through the doorway of a very painful experience in Paul's ministry in life. It's an experience that quite literally is ripped off of the front page of the news, right? In Paul's day, let's set it up for you, um, it may be hard to imagine, but there was no internet which means there was no Netflix or Amazon Prime, no PlayStation or Xbox. I don't know where you are on that one. Um, No PlayStation or Xbox or iPhones or any Androids or anything like that, right? So one of the chief forms of social connection and, and even entertainment to a degree were these men who traveled throughout their regions. And they, they came in different stripes and in different forms and in different camps, but they would travel from major city to major city where they would find an area within the center of the city. Often there'd be a little, a little amphitheater set up there in the city. They'd find the space and they would begin waxing poetic or, or waxing philosophic for days. And the city would come out and listen to them. 
And there were sophists and there were cynics and there were all different stripes. But these men would travel from town to town and they would just speak. And they would teach. And the city would come and listen to them together and begin to interact with them. This is a major form of, of connection and a major form of entertainment in the Greco-Roman world, right? But these guys had a kind of shady reputation. They didn't have the most stellar of reputations. There was a stereotype to these traveling speakers that was pretty predominant. They were smooth talkers. They knew how to pluck the emotions and the heartstrings of those they were listening to. They had a reputation for speaking in such a way that they could get for themselves from the people they were listening to whatever they wanted to gratify themselves, being financially, physically, whatever it may be. They would speak in such a way very often in these towns for days with the hopes and with the intention that maybe a wealthy family or a wealthy member of society listening to them would invite them into their home, let them stay for a while, and then maybe send them out to the next town on their way fairly well satisfied, right? Well, it seems that in light of Paul's really abrupt exit from Thessalonica, if you remember, you can go back and read Acts 17, after they came and they preached and People were getting saved and their lives were being changed. There were some religious leaders that we found out in Acts 17 who got jealous of Paul and his team. So they found some some unruly people in town and began to stir up a mob. And they went to the leaders of the city and they accused Paul and his traveling companions of speaking treason against Caesar, which is a dangerous thing in that day and time, right? So all of a sudden, the city's in an uproar. They're being accused of treason. And so the brothers get Paul out of town quickly. So he's here, and then he's gone. He's here, and things get hairy, and then he's not here. And it seems that in his absence, some people have begun to spread some rumors about Paul. Let's just put it that way, right? They've begun to run a smear campaign against him. John Stott says it this way in his commentary. The gist of these rumors and gossip sounded like this. Paul's just one more of those many phony teachers who tramp up and down the Ignatian way. He's a charlatan. He's in his job only for what he can get out of it in terms of money, prestige, sex, or power. So when opposition arose and he found himself in personal danger, he took to his heels and he ran. He doesn't care about you. He's abandoned you. He's much more concerned about his own skin than your welfare. The problem is, it seems like there were some in Thessalonica who were buying into the gossip. And it'll be very clear, this this isn't criticism of Paul, right? What's being said isn't criticism, it's slander. There's two very different things going on here. And it's always difficult to figure out how to deal with it. I won't, I won't lie to you, in, in 15 years of being here and years before that, I've been slandered many times sometimes way more painful than other times. And it's always an interesting situation to find yourself in to figure out how you're going to respond. Do you deal with it? Is it worth dealing with? What's there to gain in dealing with it or just letting it go on? Well, in this situation, Paul's going to deal with it head on because he doesn't always do it, but he's going to do it here. Because nothing short of the actual faith of this new church was at stake. Nothing short of even the traction and the credibility of the gospel in that city and in their lives was at stake. You see, if you can undermine Paul, the man, you can undermine his ministry, what else do you undermine? 
you undermine his message. If you can undermine his life, then you can undermine his message. Because nothing new under the sun exists. Who we are and how we live is often louder than what we say. Who we are and how we live powerfully reflects on the value and the trustworthiness of what we proclaim. Undermine him, you undermine the message. And so as we read through this, the accusations that Paul is going to be responding to, you'll find, and we'll talk about it as we get to it, are eerily similar to the very things in our own lives that keep the gospel from gaining traction in the place where God's put us. That often repel the beauty of the gospel for those who are watching. And at the same time, the way that Paul responds and what he calls them to remember is a highlight of a life that reflects the beauty of the message, right? And so if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to start in chapter 2. And this is just one of those moments where chapter numbers and verse numbers get in the way of the actual letter, right? They weren't original. They were added layer for reference. What Paul is saying in chapter 2 is carrying on from something he said in chapter 1. And if you can read it in its flow, it it makes a lot of sense. Back in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul made this statement where he says, just as you know the kind of men we prove to be among you, and he continued his argument, well, now he's coming back to the kind of men they proved to be. What were they actually like? Especially in relation to what they're being accused of. And he picks up there in chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know that our coming to you was not in vain. That's that's motive talk there. Our coming to you was not empty, not in vain, not purposeless. We weren't just strolling up to you with no larger intention. There was a purpose behind our coming to you. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Right? Our time with you, when we came to you, just remember, you already know this, our time with you was not empty. It wasn't purposeless. Rather, we came with a God-given boldness purposefully to declare the good news of freedom to you in the person and work of Jesus. And we did it despite what we'd already suffered. Because you know what we suffered. The story of our suffering came with us and even before us. And go back and read it in Acts chapter 16. Paul and his team, he and Silas, were taken, ha- taken captive, beaten, stripped naked, thrown in prison. A physically painful experience. But even here, Paul highlights the emotional pain that came along with it. Being stripped naked in public in the middle of the city and then tried wrongly. He was a Roman citizen. Everything they did to him was illegal. And the humiliation that came with what he had suffered and the pain that came with what he had suffered went ahead of him into Thessalonica. It just happened where they were. He said, despite that, despite what we knew would face us when we got here, we didn't come in vain and with no purpose at all. We came to speak the good news of God's grace and the person and work of his son. Gordon Fee said in his commentary that Paul was a follower of the crucified one. He was not about to let mistreatment in one place keep him from telling people about Jesus in another. I mean, just think about it for a second. Does that sound like a phony or a charlatan to you? 
push comes to shove, you're only going to suffer like Paul did for what you really believe in. Let's just be really honest. We see the pictures in the news of, of the Egyptian Christians in orange jumpsuits with a hood on their heads, with people with knives behind them. You're only going to suffer for what you really believe in. Charlatans and phonies like they're accusing Paul of, they're not going to go through what Paul went through in Philippi before he got there and do it again. Paul says, you, you know, you know. We came and it wasn't in vain. And I'll just tell you this here, friends. I, you may not believe it, I don't know, may not feel like it, but people really do tend to take notice and, and even become attracted to the gospel, the message of the gospel, when followers of Jesus remain faithful to Jesus, despite their circumstances. The news won't tell you that, Twitter won't tell you that, Facebook won't tell you that, but I promise you, steadfast faithfulness to Jesus despite circumstances, truly living like you believe that he's better. It adorns the gospel. The manner matches the method and it becomes attractive. And this wasn't, this wasn't fleshly bravado on Paul's part. I want to be careful here. This wasn't some kind of fleshly determination to be bold and brave and courageous Friends, people can sniff that stuff out a mile away. That kind of fleshly bravado always has ulterior intentions, self-serving intentions usually, right? And people can get it. They see it. They smell it. Now, Paul says this boldness, it wasn't mine. I didn't create it. I didn't generate it. I didn't white-knuckle it. I didn't just make myself do it. No, this boldness was in our God. It was a boldness that would say, I didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God to you, though I knew it was a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Now, this is a boldness that comes from God in a life lived with full conviction. Paul says, God gave us this boldness. This courage, this perseverance, it comes from him regardless of consequence. I'm not the hero. It wasn't me. It wasn't Silas. It wasn't us, it was God. He's the hero. It's a God-given, God-birthed, God-generated, God-sustained steadfastness and boldness. And Paul says you knew it, you saw it, you experienced it. And this is really important as you go and you read this chapter throughout the week this week, over and over again, Paul is going to point these people, this church, back to what they know. What they experience to be true. He's going to point them back to reality. He's already said it twice in the very opening of the chapter. As you know. In verse 5, he says it again, as you know. In verse 9, he says, you remember, brothers. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. In verse 11, he says, you know. He's constantly directing their attention back to reality. And he can do that without fear. He doesn't have to worry about what they'll think when they think back on that. He doesn't have to worry about the conclusion they'll come to when they think back on that because he knows the way he was when he was with them. And they know what it was really like to be with him. And I'll just say this as a sidebar because Paul does this throughout the entire chapter and it's very important in the message. This kind of love that we see in Paul to this church pushing them back to reality is a powerful 
tool, a powerful instrument of love. It is so easy to get caught in the narratives that we play in our own heads when it comes to what other people have done, why they've done it, what we've experienced at their hands, or whatever it may be. And we get these narratives spinning over and over and over again. And let's just be honest, usually we're the victim in the whole thing. And we begin to impute motive and idea. And they're hearing all these things about Paul that sound like it might be right. He's gone, isn't he? He's not here. Maybe they're right. Maybe this really is what he did. And it's so easy to get caught in all the noise. And it is a powerful instrument of love when you and I can help one another sift through the emotion, through all the noise, and get back to reality and get back to truth, get back to what we experienced, get back to what we actually know. That, my friends, is love. It's not easy. It's very often painful. It's gracious, and it's kind. And this is the very thing we see the Apostle Paul doing in their lives. And and it's going to capture the the fullness of this whole chapter. Let me get back to where I was going, right? Paul's now going to jump in here in verse 3, and he's going to address the rumors head on. And again, we're going to read through it. It's going to sound like the front page of the news, right? Look at what he says in verse 3. We're going to start and read through. For, so again, he's, he's talking about what he's just said. So the warrant for the boldness we have in God. That is not from me, that's from him. Here, here's what you can see. Our appeal does not spring from error, right? We were truthful. The opposite of error is truthful. Our appeal didn't spring from error. No, we were truthful. We're not delusional. We're not making things up. Our appeal didn't spring from error or impurity. You need to know that in the rest of the New Testament, all but two times this word is used, it's always connected to sexual impurity. That's what he's talking about. These guys would go into places and they would speak in such a way that they could get particular members of the audience to give them what they wanted. He said, that wasn't my motive. It wasn't our motive at all. You you know it. Or any attempt to deceive. We weren't trying to deceive you. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery. Right? That word right there, it carries the implication of of like buttering someone up for something. Do you remember doing that as a kid? You don't do it anymore, do you? Tell people what they want to hear so that when you finally get to what you really want, you're more likely to get it. We also call that manipulation. Right? We didn't come with words of flattery. We weren't trying to butter you up so that we could get from you what we wanted from you. As you know, right? Remember, reality. We didn't come with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. We didn't do all this to make a name for ourselves, to get your praise, to get your pat on the back, for our reputation to be built and established in some way. That's not why we did this. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Jesus, meaning we had authority, we could have thrown it around. Literally, that, that phrasing there means carrying a weight and pushed. And literally, you could say pushing our weight around or throwing our weight around. We could have done it, but we didn't do that. But just put it all together for a second. Lies, impurity, deception, flattery, greed, glory, power. 
Paul's just like all the others are saying. All the other charlatans. You know your 60-year-old grandmama who met that guy and he convinced her with his smooth words to give him all her money. All of you sitting out there, you have somebody you know who's gone through this. He's just like all of them. That's what he's like. And that's what? It got hard and he left. Where is he? This is what's going around. Discredit him in the manner of his life. You discredit his message. But here's the thing. Front page news. Sex, money, praise, power. The abuse of power to get praise or money or sex. I'll be really honest. I said it in the first service. I'll say it again. The use of gospel ministry to get these things is so devastating. And yet it's so widespread. I'll be honest, it's always been widespread. It's just more knowable by all of us now. It's so widespread, it's so devastating that more times than I probably would want to admit, I want to quit. Because I just don't want to be associated with it. I have very close friends in gospel ministry who are guilty of many of these things. It's devastating. This guilt by association sometimes is so weighty that it's like, I, I just can't be, a, I don't want to be a part of it. But here's the thing. Being driven by these things, it's not new. It goes straight to the deepest root of our sinfulness. The only thing that is new are the forms these things take as years go by and centuries go by and circumstances go by. But using them and pursuing them isn't new. And so Paul, for the sake of the gospel in their hearts and in their lives and the traction of the gospel in that city, says just remember what you know. You've got to sift through the noise. Sift through the words. Sift through all of that and remember what we were like when we were with you. That wasn't us. It wasn't us. Here, Paul gives us the key to his steadfastness and even here, boldness in life. You knew us. We speak, we spoke. Not to please you. Not to please man, but to please God. Paul reminds them here in these verses that he understood himself, his life, and his ministry as to be one that was entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted. Like someone would entrust a steward with their most precious resources. Paul understood the Christian life to be one of stewardship, God having entrusted him with the most precious message of all times, and he, as a steward, was responsible to God and God alone for this message. And it was a weight and a reality he was willing to carry because he carried it knowing he had the smile and approval of God. He wasn't out there going through all that he was going through, traipsing along the Ignatian Way, making all the trips, getting beaten, getting stripped, getting jailed, getting flogged, getting shipwrecked, going through all of this stuff somehow to earn this approval or earn this smile. Paul knows through the grace of God and faith in Christ that he had it. Therefore, he would go through all of that because he was confident of it. 
I had the approval of the only one that I needed. And we didn't come here somehow to, to prove ourselves to you or to get you to like us or because we needed your approval on what we were doing. No, we understand that we are stewards of the message of the gospel and responsible to God and God alone for that message and our lives that are meant to reflect that message. And in that, that's all we needed to know. This is the key to the way that the Apostle Paul lived. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have this very same approval by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. He has entrusted you with the greatest message of all time. You are here this morning as a steward of that message, an ambassador of that message, responsible to God and God alone for that message. The danger becomes not just for those of us who are in Christian ministry, but for for all of us, because it becomes a danger for all of our lives if we find ourselves needing people and their approval in the wrong way or too much. I promise you, you will find yourself one way or another trying to manipulate those people for your needs. Paul was only concerned about one person's approval. It's so easy to get wrapped up in all of the likes and shares and mentions or whatever. But friends, our our gospel living or our gospel gossip, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is meant by God to overflow from a heart that is confident in his approval, confident in his smile. Confident because he knows us and he knows our hearts. Confident in that security. It's from there that we can move forward with the sole motive to simply please him and him alone come what may. Not trying to please people. Not trying to flatter them to get something from them, especially their approval of us not trying to deceive or speak in error so that you'll like me in a certain way, not trying to be something for you because I need you to be something for me so I know I'm okay. It's knowing we have the only eternal approval that really matters that frees us to go and live in such a way that the message we proclaim is clearly consistent and reflected in the manner of the life that we actually live. If it's not... I promise you, regardless of what we say, ultimately, to a watching world, it simply won't pass the sniff test. It won't. They can smell the incongruity a mile away. And the result is being repelled by the message. Because there's nothing in the manner of living that adorns the beauty of what we're saying at all. Paul knew the approval of God And because of that, he could speak as one tested, approved, trusted by God, seeking to please him and him alone. Right? So it gives us a moment to think again. What about us? What about you? What compels you? Friends, if you are living out of the gracious approval of God in Jesus... I want you to know you actually have something of eternal value to give. You are a steward of the most precious 
message of all time. And your life reflects the beauty and the glory and the goodness of all that message proclaims. For the sake of gospel traction in your own heart, in your own life, for the sake of gospel traction and trustworthiness in this city, it matters. Because that's what's at stake. I mean, if our lives are more often characterized by the things we read in the chapter, falsehood, deception, impurity, greed, manipulation, glory-seeking, power hunger, is it any wonder that your neighbor, your coworker, your roommate, your own kids would look and listen and say, no thanks. No thanks. I'm not really interested in whatever that is. I can do that without all that. So what was Paul like then? If that's Paul addressing all the things they're saying about him, that get in the way then of the gospel gaining traction in a place because it's discredited by the way that Paul is being accused of actually living, that his life isn't matching the message that he's proclaiming, what was he really like? What are the qualities, what is the manner of living that adorns or reflects the message of grace? That multiplies its attractiveness. Well, pick it up in verse 7. Paul says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. I don't want to hear to take from you. Night and day, we worked with our hands so that we couldn't be accused of these very things. We did it while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. No charlatan. Right? Paul is just taking them back to reality. I know you've got an idea in your head now because people have been saying things, and I know that part of it seems like it might be right and it might be true because we're not there. I need you to go back to what you know. Go back to what you actually experienced. Go back to who we proved to be when we were with you. And if you could sum all that he just said up in one word, it has to be the word sacrificial. In no way when he was amongst them did he use them for his own purposes. Rather, in every way imaginable, he poured himself out for them. Like a nursing mom. Is there a more gentle picture of self-sacrifice? Is there a more tender picture? If you were to sit with the Apostle Paul, and we all have these ideas of Paul, right? This brilliant theologian arguing all the philosophers in Athens, writing all these words, willing to confront Peter. We, we had this idea that the beady little man, he's sharp and he's probably loud, you know, whatever it may be. But if you were to sit down with the Apostle Paul, what you would get would be gentleness, not intensity. A nursing mom, you'd get soothing words, not threatening words. As one writer said, I love this, it's so beautiful, listen to this. He said, Paul could see how much this church didn't understand and their immaturity wasn't a problem for him any more than the infancy of a newborn baby is a problem to her parents. 
The joy is in the child itself, the new life, the future. Paul loved these new Christians not just for what they were, but for what God would make of them. He loved them in hope, and this possessed him, sweeping him away to lengths of sacrifice that maybe only a parent can understand. He didn't resent them for what they cost him. He wasn't sulking with the thought, they have no idea of the price I'm paying for them. He wasn't waiting for a huge thank you. He was happy to give his life away. Does that sound like a charlatan to you? He wasn't after their money or their praise. He wasn't after wielding his authority or power over them. He simply wanted them. He wanted them. Not for what they could give to him, but for what they would let him give to them. It's unbelievable. In fact, you want to know how deep this love, this affection really is? In verse 8, the word translated being affectionately desirous, right? It's only used right here in the entire Bible. It's used very rarely in Paul's day in literature outside of the Bible, but it has been found archaeologically on a grave site from the 4th century. And it was used on that grave site to describe the affection and the intensity that two parents felt for a son that was buried in the grave. Some of you know our story and know that affection and that pain. This, this is the depth of Paul's affection. Who does it sound like? To me, it sounds like one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself, taking on human form in the form of a servant, being obedient to death, even death on a cross for sins he didn't commit. For a people that constantly pushed him away. One to whom a a bruised reed he was so gentle and so tender with, he wouldn't break it. One with whom a, a smoldering wick, man, barely, barely able to keep the heat and keep the fire, he wouldn't quench it. So tender, so soothing. Paul isn't telling them how he felt about them. He's saying, remember what you knew when I was with you. In fact, that's exactly where he goes in verses, verse 10. Your witnesses. And God also. This court language, he's bringing in two witnesses. Two witnesses to what it was like when I was with you. How holy and righteous and blameless our conduct toward you believers was. Remember reality. Remember what it was like. How could you not take that kind of man seriously? How could you just pass off the life and the message of someone with such affection and gentleness and tenderness? How could that message not get traction and not make an impact when it was married to a heart and a life like that? Friends, this is the heart and posture of a life being gripped by the gospel that makes the gospel compelling. The gospel itself, we can't add to it. We can't make it powerful. We can't make it more beautiful. We can simply reflect the reality of it with the way we live. Or through the way we live, we can 
push people away from it. How could you not take such a man like this seriously? Gentleness and patience, the service and sacrifice of a Savior. Like Jesus. He goes on one last thing. He says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you. That's a churchy word. You grew up in church. You ever heard exhortation? Here's our morning exhortation. I exhort you. And you have no idea what it means, do you? We should figure out how not to use that word. It simply means strong urging. That's what it means. To compel strongly. That's what it means. When someone says, I exhort you, they're saying, I am trying to compel you strongly, urge you strongly. And Paul says, like a good father with his kids, we urged you, we compelled you, and we encouraged you. The, the picture behind that word is putting wind in the sails of a boat. I put wind into your sails. I tried to deposit courage into your heart. I tried to get the wind of Christ and the Spirit into your sails, into your life. I'm urging you, compelling you, encouraging you, and at the same time, charging you. A charge is a clear, distinct reminder of responsibility. I'm reminding you with clarity of your responsibility to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what good dads do. I'm not there yet. I'm still trying to learn and figure that out. But the reality of it is, we all, we all need the gentleness and the challenge that we see here. And Paul had no problem living in both. Look him in the eye. Sit down with him. And what you get is the tenderness and the gentleness and the affection of a nursing mother and at the same time, the compulsion the urging, the wind in the sails, clarity, pushing you towards your responsibility to walk in a manner worthy of the grace and the kingdom of God. What it would have been like to sit down with Paul. What might that have been? Right? But you're responsible for this, right? No one's going to stand and give an account for your life. You're going to have to do that. You're going to have to walk in a manner worthy of this kingdom that God has called you into. You're not going to get to the end and somehow blame your parents, blame your friends, blame your church, blame your circumstances, right? Paul knew, as Jesus had said, Matthew 12, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of the evil treasure in his heart brings forth evil. And I tell you, on the day of judgment, you'll give an account for every careless word. All of it is going on in there. Paul is urging them and compelling them, clearly reminding them of their responsibility at the same time, dropping gospel wind into their sails. Oh my goodness, God has given you all that you need. Yes, you're responsible. Yes and amen, he's been sufficient and continues to be sufficient for you. You don't have to earn your way into that kingdom. Right? You don't have to walk in such a way that somehow you earn your way into this kingdom he's called you into. No, this walk, this, this urging, this living that I'm calling you to, it's just a reflection of the reality that's already happened. And it was just blowing wind after blowing wind after blowing wind if you were with Paul. 
like a good dad. He urged and encouraged all of them to take hold of all that God has done for them in Christ. He urged them, compelled them, and charged them to see Jesus, to enjoy Jesus, to be with him that they would become increasingly like him so that the manner of their life would reflect the consistency of the message that they proclaimed. Friends, you and I were made to enjoy this freedom, this joy in God in the same way you see the birds outside above the river flowing freely and enjoying the sky and the thermals up there. We were made to enjoy him in this way. We want the people of our city to get in on that joy. So let's not get in the way of it. Let me ask you, does your heart hunger and thirst for Jesus? Is there an appetite for him in you? Is his love regularly reshaping the the core loyalties of your heart? Are you wanting his wisdom to be expressed in the way in which you live, the way in which you react to life and the choices that you make on a daily basis? What do people get with you? Do they get the patience and the gentleness of a nursing mom, the, the urging and the courage and the calling and the boldness of a father? Friends, let's not live in such a way that we create obstacles. That somehow our lives are increasingly incongruent with the message that we proclaim. They're going to be at times. That's the beauty of the good news. In humility, we get to be the first to own the inconsistency, to name the inconsistency, to, re- to confess the inconsistency, and then to turn from it back to the real Jesus because we believe he's better. As Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 18, we get to repent and live. God has given us all we need for our lives to adorn the beauty of the gospel to reflect the beauty of the message that we proclaim for our lives and the manner of our living, to be consistent with all that we say. He's given us everything we need. The very spirit that raised him from the dead is alive and at work in our hearts, conforming us and working us into the image of the one who has saved us. We don't have to go and figure it out. We just have to be dependent upon what he's already done. Let's not get in the way. Today and tomorrow and the next day, let's let's put the confidence of our hearts, the hope of our hearts, the faith of our hearts in the one who in every way, shape, form, or fashion, thought, word, and deed, lived in consistency with the message of his kingdom and then carried the weight of our inconsistency carried the weight of our treason and carried the weight of our sin in his body on the cross in our place. He's better. He's better. Let's not just say he's better. Let's really begin to believe he's better so that we can begin to live increasingly in a way that is consistent with the glory 
consistent with the joy, consistent with the grace that we proclaim. Let me pray for us this morning, and then we're going to respond to God's word together. We're going to do it in a few different ways. I'll pray, and then we'll give you a moment, a minute or two, to just reflect in silence on God's word and how he may be calling you to respond. And then for those who have believed upon Christ in repentance and faith, you'll be invited to come and declare your faith in Christ, your confidence in Christ, not up here on a microphone, but by receiving communion, remembering his body broken in your place for your sin, his blood shed for your salvation. You're proclaiming your faith and confidence in him. And then together we'll sing. And God will send us out from here as his people. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll move into responding. Father, sometimes the reality of my own inconsistency and the reality of the inconsistency of your church and how we live and what we say is overwhelming. It doesn't surprise you. You're not surprised by it. You sent your son to live and to die in our place to pay the price for it. And you've given us all we need to begin to bring the message that we proclaim more in line with the lives that we live. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to do a work in our hearts to begin to increasingly bring those things into alignment where we don't hunger and thirst for you where we don't desire to live in such a way that our lives reflect through our priorities and our decisions and the habits of our life. We don't reflect the message that we say is so great and has changed us. Help us to see it that we might begin to turn from it. Not because we're smarter, not because we have a better plan, because we know that your spirit is at work in us. Help us to be dependent upon your spirit and your wisdom for that. Lord, we want to be a people whose lives, whose lives are compelling, whose lives adorn the message that we proclaim. Lord, we ask in Jesus' good name for, for his glory, for our deepest joy, for the traction of the gospel in this city and the people that we love, that you would continue to make that a reality in us. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.